This is a long time ago, late 90s. When I was 19, I moved from Oregon to Florida to be with my boyfriend at the time. I was thinking white sand beaches and Mickey Mouse, but instead got the swamps, bugs, and dirt roads. It was a huge shock to the system. We lived in this dinky little town called Hawthorne, just outside of Gainesville. Very small, one stoplight, and four stores. Dollar General, Steve's Market, Eckert's Pharmacy, and Sonny's Barbecue. Whoopee! Anyway, I got a job at the now-defunct Eckert's in the middle of town. It was next to the grocery store, so everyone shopped there. After about three months or so working there, I walked in to start my shift one day when the manager pulled me into his office. Laid out on his desk was about 30 to 40 open letters, all addressed by hand to me. Do you know this person? My manager asked. Read one. So I picked a cheerful yellow one. Inside were two handwritten letters and a magazine cutout of a woman with long blonde hair, just like me. As the Eckerd manager watched on, I read the letter. I skipped around a lot out of confusion, desperately trying to find out why I'm in this room. From what I read, it was mostly someone imagining what spending time with me would be like. A lot of it was sexual in nature. There were descriptions and comments about my hair, washing it, smelling it, and something about the moonlight. A few sentences were highlighted, others were underlined. My first thought was, am I getting fired? Do you know this David Elrod? I said yes, I think so. The tall, lanky guy and frizzy dark blonde hair. The regular who comes in a couple of times a week to pick up Diet Coke and medication for his mom late 20s and obviously socially or mentally challenged. On rare occasions, he would make small talk as I rang up his soda. Once or twice, he would linger at my register or stare at me, but I figured he was just trying to adjust his eyes or had poor social cues. Harmless compared to some of the other people I had met in Florida, so I didn't pay him any mind until that day in the Eckert's office. I knew he wrote the letters because of a strange encounter two weeks earlier. While working, he came up behind me and caressed my hair. I had to remove it from his hands and he apologized. Weird. No harm. I went back to work. After telling my manager this, he informed me that the customer was going to be banned from the store and I was being sent home while they worked out the details. What details? Confused, I walked out of the store and drove home. Two hours after I got home from my non-shift at work, there's a knock on my door. I look out the window and see what resembles a SWAT team. What the fuck? I saw men in tactical gear with large weapons Two men dressed in suits, 
and several uniformed cops. In what seemed like slow motion at the time, I opened the door. A female officer holds up a few oddly familiar letters. Can we come in and talk to you about these? Realizing everyone in town has read the letters, I wanted to pass the fuck out. I don't even know the guy. We have a seat on my couch, and she begins to speak. Out of the corner of my eye, I see my boyfriend shooting me dirty looks from the bedroom. The female officer mentions getting the letters from Eckerd's and attempting to issue a trespassing notice. They wanted to speak to him directly, she says, because her whole department is aware of David. The officers confronted him at his residence and attempted to evoke the trespassing notice from Eckerd's store. Apparently, he was not happy about this. He insisted for over 45 minutes how this was all a big mistake and I wanted to talk to him. He was so combative and persistent, they decided to pursue stalking charges. Stalking charges? She continues, You need to be aware that David killed and partially dismembered his mother when he was 12 years old. He was released from a juvenile psychiatric facility less than four years ago. Diet Coke. We found disturbing materials at his home, she continued. We believe he's been stalking you. My mind kept wondering. It's my mom's favorite drink. David was arrested the next day for stalking after he was found in the Eckerd's parking lot. But the last official word was he went back to the psychiatric hospital, at least temporarily. I didn't have the chance to read the letters in full before they were entered into some vault of evidence, nor did they explain what they found at his house, so I never had the complete picture of what was happening. My boyfriend at the time was a huge dick about the whole thing, so I moved back home a week later. Besides, who wants to hang around when Norman Bates is fixated on you? Hello everyone, this is a story from my grandmother from when she was younger in the late 60s. She and her friends decided to use an Ouija board to try and talk with spirits. They're all non-believers. So they got ready and all three of them put their hands on the moving thing. They then asked, who's there? And the pace then started moving. Then my grandmother said that she let go and told her friend, hey, stop moving it, it's so obvious. And her friend said, I'm not moving it, you are. And they tried again. This time, they asked it, who's there? And the same thing happened. My grandma told me that she felt terrified. She said she really didn't know what to believe now. And instead of a name, the board spelled out a phone number and my grandma was freaked out. None of them dared to call it. They asked, whose number is this? Then it started to move once again and this time it's felt out. Call this number and tell Joseph not to travel tomorrow. My grandmother and her friends were horrified by this because none of them knew a Joseph, so they tried calling the number, no answer. Again, no answer. So they all decided to go home and call it a night. 
None of them called, but my grandma did the next morning at around 8am. She called and there was a woman. My grandma said, Hello, can I speak to Joseph? And the woman said, He's not here right now, he went to work. Who is this? My grandma explained the situation and the woman said, Oh my god, I'll call you back when I've told him. The next day, the woman called up again and was crying. Her husband Joseph died on the way to his work in a car accident that sent him plummeting off a bridge into a river. My grandmother was deeply saddened by hearing this. She vowed never to use an Ouija board again. My father was a marine for 24 years. He has always been serious and never made stories up. He told me the following, which he had not told anybody before. Before he became an officer, he was enlisted and was a recruiter. Recruiters are very pushy and will say a lot to get you to sign up. One day, their recruiting office got a call about a kid who was interested in joining the Marines, and they made an appointment to go to his house the following day to speak to him about it. The next day, my father and another recruiter made a 25-minute car trip to the house, and upon arriving, were uncomfortable. He said the house was very eerie, and he described it as old, and said it didn't look like it belonged. The inside of the house was even weirder, it was like it came from a different time. There was nothing modern, no TV, very poorly lit. He described it as looking like something from the 1940s. They stayed for about 45 minutes talking with this young guy, explaining what the Marines can do for him. This young guy stated that he wanted to enlist and my dad and the other recruiter said they would be back the next day with paperwork. They left the house with a weird feeling and figured the family was just odd. They understood the guy wanted to leave that town and join up something more exciting. He said that he went home that night and the next day left with the other recruiter to go back to the house. They made their way to where the house was and found nothing there. He said they both were certain they were where the house had been the day before and couldn't understand what had happened. After making double sure they were in the right place, they hightailed it out of there and never returned. Back at the recruiting station, they called the landline that they had gotten when they initially talked to the guy and the number was not in service. If you can imagine a hard-ass marine who doesn't make stuff up or tell stories then you have my dad. I am not sure what to make of the story and figured maybe somebody else would take pleasure in hearing this experience. For some brief context, I'm a 22 year old female and the following events occurred when I was 19 to 21. When I moved away for college, I started talking to the Catholic priest, Father Gabe, who ran the chapel and woman's shelter behind my dorm building because something scary happened to me and I really didn't know who else to talk to. 
plus. He was literally like a hundred feet from my bedroom window. Anyway, long story short, Father Gabe is the exorcist for the vast surrounding areas. He's also a demonologist and he was born and raised in Rome. He studied there. He's also super old, like 87, and he's super fraud minded as well considering that he's a priest. I feel the need to specify that I'm not an overly religious person, I'm more spiritual, and my basic belief system is that there's something greater than us that our minds just can't simply comprehend, and that this entity we label as God, well that's there, and it does exist. There are things that are beyond our control that are sometimes malevolent. Now demons isn't really the right term for them, it's the only term that we've come up with but they are very evil. So basically, I think that every religion in the world has a piece to the puzzle but none of them paint the whole picture. Last, it's important to explain the reason I began working with Father Gabe on his cases. For the sake of space, I'm going to be very clear. I have a sixth sense and my connection to the other side has always been very strong ever since I was a small child. It runs in my family on both sides, so I guess you could say I was kind of physically born into this for better or worse. I told Father Gabe about this and after testing me numerous times, he asked me to help him with an extremely violent case. I agreed and without much hesitation, that's where my story begins. The victim of this was a 7 year old boy. For his own privacy, I'll just call him Danny. Danny has been acting very strange for the past few months. His parents had taken him to numerous doctors, psychologists specialists etc but they were never able to diagnose anything wrong with him. His mum Sarah was a nurse and the family wasn't particularly religious but Sarah's parents were convinced that they had to take Danny to the Baptist church and they needed to see the pastor. Though the pastor knew that something was horribly wrong with this kid but he didn't have the necessary skills or knowledge to help him. That's when Father Gabe got called. Now the memories are kind of fuzzy. It's been a few years, so I really can't remember Danny's whole story like when the weirdness started and how things escalated to the point that they did, but I do remember listening to an audio recording of Father Gabe's first interview with this kid and there were multiple voices talking with some different languages. Just unnatural weird stuff. Anyway, I'll skip to the investigation proportion of this story, although a lot of crazy stuff happened then. It wasn't like the actual exorcisms. It's just weird. Now I'm going to go into detail with the most intense terrifying parts and gloss over everything else. So the first exorcism attempt. Danny is strapped down to his bed with hospital restraints and hooked up to an IV because he stopped eating and drinking. Sarah, being a nurse, was able to get these things fairly easily. So I went there thinking, oh that's alright, we won't have to hold him down like in those crazy movies. But. I was so very wrong. Real quick, the way a Catholic priest exorcism goes is sort of like a mass. Basically, there's a part where the priest says that they're going to do a part called the congregation. It's mostly just echoing whatever the priest says, and Father Gabe performed his in Latin. It can be done in English though. So Father Gabe starts reading from his Roman rites book and the younger assistant priest, Randall, as well as myself, were all reading along with him. Not even a page in, the kid starts struggling violently against his restraints and when he realises that his wrists and ankles are strapped down, 
His spine bends backwards to the most unnatural arch that I've ever seen before. His face was almost against his stomach. He bites the IV connected to his arm and tries to rip through it with his teeth. I'm not lying. Blood splattered everywhere and was spraying from the bottle like in a horror movie. I then had to drop my book to go and help Father Randall. That's Roy, Danny's dad, and Hurdle. Sarah's dad and Danny's grandpa hold Danny down while his mum was bandaging him up. Skip forward to the fourth attempt. We're all worn out. Danny obviously the most, but we have to power through. So we start the exorcism and things start going crazy. The power goes out and one by one the candles in the room are blown out. Now I'm afraid of the dark. So the moment this happens, I'm already on my knees trying to find my flashlight. Desperately searching. I do find it quick though. But by then, the room is pitch black and strangely silent. My hands are shaking as I fumble around trying to turn on the flashlight when suddenly, I smell rancid meat and a deep, guttery voice asks me in a mocking tone, Are you afraid, no? Directly into my ear from just over my shoulder, this made me instantly leap up and let out a really loud scream. I was terrified, dropping the flashlight to the ground in the process. When it hits the ground, it turns on and the beam of light darts around the room, bouncing off everything, briefly illuminating Danny. He's now standing in the centre of the bed, staring directly at me. He has the most disturbing smile that I've ever seen. This instantly made me fall down to my knees, and I start blindly feeling around for my flashlight that I can no longer see since it's went out as soon as it flicked on. I find it soon though and flick it on to see that Danny's no longer standing on the bed like he was less than a second ago. I shine the light around and much to everyone's shock and horror, we find him crammed into the foot and a half wide gap between the top of his bookshelf and the ceiling. His body is contorted and he's crying, confused as to why he's up there and obviously he's in a lot of pain. All the men help to get him down and just like that, the power come back on. Now skip ahead again to the seventh attempt. I'm not even sure if this kid is going to survive this alone, and he's just getting more and more terrified and it's leaving me emotionally rattled. We're halfway through the exorcism, I see that the main entity that's been inhibiting Danny's body suddenly appears. It's squatting on top of Danny's chest, staring down at him laughing. His skin is inky black, so that way it absorbs all of the light that hits it instead of reflecting it. Everything about his body is long and thin. The fingers are long as well, coming to sharp points at the end. Not like claws, just like only continuous pointed digits if that makes sense. It looked like a skeleton wearing a skin, only much thinner though. Its skin was razor sharp too. Its mouth was full of razor sharp teeth and its eyes. There are no words in any language on earth that can describe such militia and horror. Already being emotional, I start to lose it, I start to yell at that thing to get off Danny and leave him alone. Everybody probably thinks that I look insane since I'm the only one who can see this thing, but I keep on demanding it goes, then it looks at me, but I'm so angry that I fight the urge to cower in fear. This time, it just looks at me and it says in that ungodly voice, don't get angry, it's all just a game. Then this thing sinks into Danny's chest. He's just absorbed the entity. I'm still working on processing what just happened when I hear a loud metallic snap. 
It didn't take me long to realise the sound was Danny's right hand restraint buckle because he suddenly sits up and slowly turns his head until he's staring at me. Once again, his eyes are completely black and his face is scratched into the most horrific smile. There's a tense moment of silence before Danny's mouth opens in his own voice he says, Do you want to play a game? Now before I even get the chance to answer, both the power and candles are extinguished. I feel a gust of wind blow past me, and listen as the other members of the party are slammed into the walls and shelves behind us. I'm freaking out by now. I reach for my tiny flashlight that I clipped to my belt loop to avoid being caught without it, and then I realise it was no longer there. How is that even possible? My mind goes into absolute panic as I hear the sound of a metal cap unscrewing and two funks on the hardwood next to Danny's bed. Flashlights are against the rules. I hear Danny say with a giggle. I'm obviously borderline terrified as I squeak out to Father Gabe. What are we gonna do? All I hear is him groan out in pain and suddenly Danny shouts out, They aren't allowed to play. I'm almost crying now and I ask, What do you want? Another giggle. To play. Then, on come the lights. I'm almost blinded by the sudden exposure of the lights to me. I can't see a thing but I can hardly believe what I'm seeing. All the males in the group are pinned up against the wall, obviously unable to move. Sarah and I are just staring at each other with the same scared expression. Suddenly, I hear a low growl come out of Danny, bringing our attention back to him. He just isn't smiling anymore. He looks downright evil. He says, I thought I said lights were against the rules. He snarls, his voice reverting back to the deep growl one. Now from across the house, I hear Danny's grandpa, Laurie, yell and flip that the circuit board just went back on. Danny flies into a rage. He starts thrashing wildly while yelling, you broke the rules, over and over again. Sarah and I move forward to pin him down and restrain him once again when he suddenly stops flailing. There's a toxic pause before I hear him whisper in a barely audible voice, now I'm gonna break something. And then, his body starts contorting in the most unnatural way that I've ever seen. He then twisted and twisted, and it put massive amounts of stress and strain onto his left shoulder, as if he were trying to pry himself out of the other restraint. It then clicked to us exactly what he was trying to do. Sarah and I jumped on him, trying desperately to hold him down. I'm not ashamed to say that by this point I started crying. Sarah and I struggled to stop his twisting body from winding any further but to no avail. I'm 5'7 and 130 pounds. I'm by no means a pushover and Sarah was only a little smaller than me but as we were trying our hardest to push him down, we were both crying and at this point we realised we couldn't do anything. The one thing about all of this that I will never forget the rest of my life Danny's left shoulder suddenly caves in, retching downwards into the socket with a sickening, unmistakable pop. And just like that, he was back. The thing left him to feel the pain of the shoulder that he'd literally just dislocated. I've never heard another human scream like that, I doubt I ever will. So, this is where I'll stop. I had many, many stories, but I just wanted to broadstroke the most terrifying and traumatizing of events that took place. I'm not asking anyone to believe me, but I thought that others might find this story interesting. This world is full of both darkness and light. This experience gave me a glimpse of both.
Just to clarify, I'm a 5'7", 14-year-old female. This encounter takes place when I was 13. I live in a very quiet village in Scotland, and this town has never had a kidnapping before that I know of, so I was exactly prepared for this encounter. My parents asked me to run down to the local Tesco for essentials, such as bread and milk, so I started to walk the half mile or so down the town. Since I'm a really paranoid person, I normally keep a good eye on my surroundings, and I notice something off. A black mini is driving slowly behind me. I'm too afraid to turn around again to see the driver, but I pick up my walking pace. They also drive a little faster. In my head, I'm screaming, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. I finally make it into the Tesco car park and practically sprint to the front doors. I probably looked like an idiot, but when you think that you're going to be murdered, you run fast. I talked to one of the cashiers who was a very nice young lady who looked like she was in her early 20s. I told her I thought I was being followed and pointed to the car so she could get a good look at the plate number and she said her friends would look out for me. I felt a little better and made my way to the dairy aisle. I was scanning for the cheapest milk when there was a tap on my shoulder. I turned around to this six foot two middle-aged man that had greasy black hair and was wearing a tracksuit. Hey there, just wanted to say that you're really beautiful, very pretty. He took a few steps towards me. I, being a person who really hates human interaction, started to cry silently the tears just spilling down my face with no sound. He takes this opportunity to say, Now there, stop crying. Don't want that gorgeous face of yours all wet. You and me should go down and have a drink together. What do you say? I'm so scared. But then I hear the cashier's voice behind him. She yells at him, asking what the hell he's doing. Oh, Well, I'm just asking my beautiful girlfriend if she wants to have a drink at the bar. That's all. Girlfriend? Beautiful? I'm wearing a Hogwarts Hufflepuff hoodie that's too big for me with scruffy jeans and scruffy shoes. How the hell am I beautiful right now? I looked up to the lady and whispered, I'm 13. This is when she threatens to call the police. He backs off and says this was all a big misunderstanding and he thought I was older. He then turns and runs out of the store. The lady, whose name was Rachel, helped me gather the rest of my items since I was in a panic state and called the police and told them the guy's license plate number and called my parents to inform them that they should pick me up. I bought her a box of chocolates the next day to say thank you. I don't know what happened to the man, but I hope he's in police custody where he belongs. So, creepy guy who thought I was older, let's not meet again.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.